Hello everybody, welcome back to Equals. This is Max and I'm uh, broadcasting to you from London. And um, yeah, I'm on with Nabil. Welcome everyone to Equals. This is Nabil broadcasting to you from Washington, DC. It is good to be back. At the same time, wholehearted honesty, listeners, there is really one issue which is consuming heart and mind above all right now really looking at the horrors of what's been unfolding in Gaza. It is really difficult to think about anything else and try and concentrate on anything else. I mean, what's unfolding in front of our eyes is just, it's just appalling. Um, so it is difficult. Truly, Max, truly. And just even just to take a moment there, I feel the gravity, the scale of what's happening is like nothing that we've seen in our lifetimes. And, and we've been reading that from, from so many of our humanitarian leaders um, there in Gaza and across the world. Can I also say, Max, it's been heartening in some way to see such solidarity pouring out, people desperate for a ceasefire, for peace. I've seen that you know, in marches, in conference halls. I recently got to be in Brazil. There's a solidarity here that's really bringing people together. Yes, that's true. I've definitely seen that on the marches here in London, which have been enormous. And the cross-section of society and so many people who've never been on a march before, people can see that this is wrong and they can see that it needs to stop. And that, that is inspiring. We saw that as well at the climate negotiations taking place in the UAE as well, didn't we? Yeah, and in the run-up to the climate negotiations, in fact, Greta, I think, most famously said that there can be no climate justice on occupied land, and that was that pretty much summed it up. It does, it does, doesn't it? She she's so powerful in bringing these issues together, like millions are, to show that they are all interwoven together. And today's episode is we, we're zeroing in on the climate issue again. In our first episode, we talked about climate and inequality, and Today, we're going to be looking at the solution that's put forward, uh, um, financing the transition away from fossil fuels that virtually every powerful person on earth says that the solution lies not with the public sector, but with the private sector, with private finance. And we're going to be digging into that today and speaking to someone who's really built a quite an amazing critique of that approach. Absolutely. We're coming to terms with this new kind of development model that's that's really taking over and and she herself and I'll introduce her in a moment has summarized it as as the Wall Street consensus and that we've moved from the Washington consensus to the Wall Street consensus. It's an absolute pleasure to have Dr. Daniela Gabor on the podcast today. Daniela is professor of economics and macro finance at UWE Bristol and she's actually currently doing a stint at Princeton here in the United States and she's really the foremost thinker on this. I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, coming to know her work has been amazing for me. It's really opened my mind to a whole new perspective on things. And it, it's great that she's agreed to do the interview. Let's get to it. Yes, let's. Daniela, a very warm welcome to Equals. It's wonderful to have you on. We have such appreciation for your discourse as a rare paradigm level thinker. But also, I must say, I saw the other day you quoting the Wu-Tang Clan in the Financial Times, and I'm pretty certain I've never seen anyone do that. Thank you very much for the invite. I had to ask Nabil who the Wu-Tang Clan were. The Wu-Tang Clan is a hip-hop band, and they have a very good uh, song that kind of um, 
speaks to some concerns that economists have about how we theorize money, right? If time is money, I got time and time saved, they sing, uh, which is uh, actually very deep in, in some ways. Uh, and I managed to convince a, a Financial Times editor to let me put it into a, an opening paragraph. Max, this is why you need to listen to more hip hop. Yes, 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 yes. Anyway, let's let's move on to the interview. Um, so, um, Daniela, we were all so excited when uh, Jake Sullivan, who's Joe Biden's most senior national security advisor, he gave this amazing speech where he said the Washington consensus was dead, that it was time to move on from the policies of neoliberalism, which was pretty exciting. Uh, but you're a bit more circumspect uh, about that. Can you, can you say why you're perhaps not as excited? So let me just start by saying that, like you, I do find it fascinating that the Biden administration is declaring um, publicly the end of, of neoliberalism. I think it creates some opportunities. But what, what I have done over the last uh, four years is to ask what, what is coming to replace uh, neoliberalism or, or the Washington consensus as we uh, tend to describe uh, neoliberalism, at least in, in development circles. And I am a little bit more skeptical once you start to dig into and to unpack what is there, because uh, what we are seeing is a new development paradigm, which I have described as the Wall Street consensus, to capture the, the spirit and the, the intentions and the ambitions and the ecosystem of this new development uh, logic that basically starts from the promise that the state, uh, mostly states in the, in the global south, but now it is, I think, extending to the global north as, as well. It starts from the premise that the state does not have uh, enough fiscal or institutional capacity for direct public investment. Because the state doesn't have this fiscal capacity, what it has to do, it has to mobilize private finance. And the logic is, you know, you have to make uh, development investable for, say, BlackRock in the US or Meridian in France or South African pension fund. Okay, so Daniela, this logic, what you're describing, almost sounds like the BlackRockization of development and of the state. Could you help us break this down? What does the Wall Street consensus actually look like on the, you know, the streets of Uganda or of Bangladesh? So there is a push to to make um, the sustainable development goals and all the areas that come under the sustainable development goals to make them investable. Overarching logic is to start to think of infrastructure, both social uh, uh, services like, say, education or health or water or, or transport, to start to think of energy as asset classes. For example, you look at Kenya's largest wind farm project called the Lake Turkana Wind Project. That is a private project supported by a constellation of uh, private investors, uh, including BlackRock. And the government of Kenya uh, basically provides a guaranteed demand for the energy that is produced by the Lake Turkana Wind Project and where costs go um, higher than expected or when there is not enough uh, demand from private consumers, the government steps in and guarantees these, these returns. This is so interesting, Daniela. And, you know, we'll go into some of the arguments that we find um, against this and some of the alternative ways of thinking about it. So far, you've spoken about it as a development paradigm and an alternative development paradigm. But we also see this framing applied to, you know, the rich country uh, policy, like the Inflation Reduction Act, for example. Is that also the case? 
Yes, I would argue that that this logic of de-risking is very is a is very powerful politically because what it says to to politicians is that they, you do not need to change much in the status quo that we have at the moment. And I describe this as the status quo of financial capitalism. And what do I mean by that? I mean the status quo where we have very large institutional investors or asset managers who are managing trillions of US dollars and allocating trillions of US dollars across different asset classes, including, as I said, infrastructure asset classes. Because the political obstacles to change this um, the status quo, for example, to better regulate or shrink institutional capital, because of course that would require the state to start providing more certainty for the future through public pensions, through uh, nationally owned health systems, through national education. Uh, the scale of reforms necessary is so uh, incredibly uh, challenging politically. Then what we have is when the state is confronted with a series of policy challenges, and that goes from the climate crisis to the geopolitical contest uh, that uh, the U.S. sees in its relationship with China, then the state says, okay, I'm not going to change anything massively in in either uh, uh, getting the central bank to better coordinate with the fiscal authority. Instead, what it says is I have to mobilize private capital, which is to me a code word for bribing capital. One thing that struck me in what you've said is, you know, when we started out on the Washington consensus, they couldn't really have done this because they hadn't really freed up capital because that was part of the Washington consensus. But now we're in a, you know, we look at a lot of billionaires, we look at the explosion in assets at the top and, you know, financialization and just the enormous world of money that's out there. And is that partly why we're seeing this? Because like the world of money, kind of the tail of capital is kind of wagging the government dog. Is that that partly what's happening here? Yes, I think that's a very good way to describe it. In some ways, the Wall Street consensus is the, the kind of legitimate child of the Washington consensus, because Washington consensus sets the terrain on which the new politics of the Wall Street consensus takes place, in the sense that the Washington consensus is pushing most states in the global north out of the existing social contracts with its citizens that were centered on the provision of public goods. You know, there's been this huge transfer of public wealth in turning it into private wealth. Uh, and this Wall Street consensus would probably accelerate that. But yet at the same time, it does mean that governments around the world just don't have the money to invest in, in healthcare, in building roads, in the Green New Deal. So is there any alternative to bribing private capital, as you described? I would say that an easy description is to say, well, governments have no money. My worry is when, when we say that is we are already setting up a, a political narrative which constructs the private sector as a solution. When people say because there is no pu- uh, public money, we have to bribe private uh, capital. And in most countries in the global south, this typically occurs through public-private partnerships, which are vehicles basically for privatizing a set of social and public goods. We know that in in practice, we have very well-documented evidence that PPPs are more expensive for the state than the public ownership, public investment alternative. To me, the the better way to think about it is to say, well, there is very little political willingness or political momentum for organizing the relationship between the state and the private sector in a way that generates a better return or more fiscal space and more space for the state's relationship with, with private capital. And if you look at the new World Bank president, uh, Ajay Banga, he has been appointed by the Biden administration 
with a very clear mandate to scale up the Wall Street consensus because, you know, this is a very beautiful discourse, but in practice, the amount or the, the scale of public resources that is necessary to drive private capital, it's quite substantive. So in a sense, this is a politically appealing narrative uh, and a politically appealing paradigm, but in, in practice, a, it, it's not very effective unless we regear we a lot of fiscal resources at country level in the global south towards these this kind of drives. And, and my worry is that this is where we're heading. So, Daniela, there's a lot here. Let's talk about regulation for a moment, or the lack of it. You've spoken before about how the Wall Street consensus is, you know, approach of all carrots and no sticks. Could you expand on that, please? And, and linked to it, you know, how can we design private finance to really work for big public goals? Uh, I've been studying the way in which countries, you know, going back to the literature on the developmental state, the important thing to take from the literature and the successes of the developmental states in East Asia, although they are very much products of very specific historical circumstances, I think there are some interesting lessons to draw from there. And the first one to draw is to, is to think very carefully about how the state realigns or comes closer with private capital. Because this is what the Wall Street consensus says. It says, well, during the era of the Washington consensus, we thought that development would be achieved if we took the state out of the market. And the Wall Street consensus says, well, actually, we were wrong. The state has to come back because the market doesn't go everywhere where we would like it to go. And we would like to just extend the markets and the, and the reach of the markets into, into certain new directions. So to me, what this brings forward is a question of what kind of relationships between the state and private capital can we have uh, in the uh, kind of global fragmented capitalism that we do. Clearly, the World Street Consensus answer to that question is we have to make financiers uh, our development partners. We bring them to all these seminars at the World Bank, uh, at the IMF, at every COP uh, that's happened over the last five to six years. And we ask them, what do you need to come and invest in these countries? Now, this is a relationship that, that by definition, is mostly inviting kind of one-way bribes or carrots from from governments and multilateral development banks to the private sector. Whereas the the experience of the developmental state with which I started suggests that it is possible to have a closer control of private capital where you bear carrots with sticks. In other words, you don't just guarantee returns, you don't just guarantee cash flows, but you ask the private capital to meet certain performance criteria, you sometimes can even say, well, in certain sectors, for example, in health, you shouldn't have asset classes, you shouldn't have private capital investing because citizens should not pay for the public health system. So there are areas in which I think the relationship with private capital shouldn't exist. And there are certain areas in which there can be a more equal relationship between the state and private capital, one where possibilities of profit are also paired with kind of sticks or mechanisms to discipline and coerce private capital into doing the things that the state wants to do. The overarching uh, priority is to make sure that you don't go with incentives but not regulation. And the worry is because the US are now doing it on such a large scale that that becomes the new standard and you know, we end up in a world full of carrots and all the sticks are consigned to the bin. I mean, does that worry you in terms of the kind of 
the Europeans rushing to join in with the, the bribery festival? This is what I have argued, that, uh, that the Europeans used to have a more, let's say, carrots and sticks approach, and uh, in the sense that they, at least due to the, the public, mostly youth pressure. You remember, you know, before COVID, we used to have young people on the street, not just in Europe, but everywhere, uh, protesting every Friday, and that was felt by European politicians as very significant political pressure to do things differently. And there was, was also a kind of geopolitical calculus there that if they did sustainable finance first, then maybe they would become like these world standard setters and, you know, also get some very nice uh, kind of competitive advantage out of it. But they start, so the Europeans started to do uh, this kind of carrot and stick approach to, to private finance. Uh, in around 2017, 2018. And as we entered the COVID pandemic and when the Biden administration came in with this kind of, here are all the sticks, it is a, a bribery festival that has unlimited bribes. And that kind of derailed already the, the European project to do a, a carrot and stick um, approach. And now we are left with a very weak uh, approach to, to mobilizing private capital. Daniela, you've spoken about how a transition through the financial sector has inequality and injustice built in. Could you walk us through that, please? And let's get to the alternative, the big green state. We'd love to hear about that and how that's a different way to organise a transition. Just to summarise very quickly, the reason why I worry about the increasing hegemony of uh, this paradigm is that distributionally it is an inequality machine, right? Because it privatizes public goods, because it basically de facto transfers resources from the public sector to a small subset of of investors. I also worry because it continues to exacerbate the uh, external debt vulnerabilities of countries in the global south, because ultimately it says, you know, you have to get foreign investment. And we don't very much care. And this is where, to me, the, the, the biggest problem is we don't very much care about the, developing the productive capacity of your country. And th- this, to me, is critical, particularly when we talk about decarbonization and about uh, uh, green transitions, is are we kind of condemning uh, countries in the global south to a, an exacerbated pattern of an equal ecological exchange? Because the way in which the World Trade Consensus uh, constructs these countries creates the political imaginary of they will become a generators of yield for institutional investors, for the Black Rocks, um, and they will become uh, importers and consumers of clean tech produced in the US or China. So because of these concerns that there isn't much you know, optimism in the, in the logic of the Wall Street Consensus for countries in the global south, the alternative that I've been thinking about and trying to work through, this idea of, of the uh, big green state basically tries to uh, acknowledge the fact that given the profound scale of economic transformation that we need for decarbonization, where we have some sectors have to expand and some sectors have to shrink, that is, we need to have a rapid and profound reorganization of economic structures. The big green state basically says you can't do coordination on this scale via the market. You can't put private capital in the driving seat. It's not going to work. And we already see it. I mean, I can give you numerous examples of where things have gone wrong 
with the risking in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Argentina, and now you see it also in the United States and Europe, when market conditions change and profit projections change, investors can do what my friends from the Commonwealth called a green capital strike. Basically, they say either you increase fiscal transfers to us or we'll, we'll stop doing the investment or we'll, we'll pare it down. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so the big green state acknowledges that this is basically the the kind of harsh reality of of the decarbonization project, and instead it takes a lot of um, the economic activity directly on its balance sheet. Okay, right now we're talking. Let's dive deeper into the big green state. Just how big is the big green state? What's the purpose and the scale of industrial policy and public investment? And you mentioned there that some sectors have to expand, some have to shrink. Which are those? What's the logic there? I, I would say that the big green state is not necessarily a state that does in, industrial policy for the purposes of external competitiveness, although it might end up having to do that simply because we would need to have a global reform of the international financial architecture of global trade and production flows which is kind of ambitious, to put it mildly. But at least what the big green state has to be able to do is, for example, to say, I want to shrink some sectors like coal or other fossil fuels or fossil fuel dependent sectors. And I want to redirect those economic activity towards other greener sectors. To me, the biggest issue for for the big green state is not to identify what what kind of sectors uh, we would like to prioritize. Although I do give the example of Uganda, who has um, benefited from uh, Chinese technology transfers to start a state-owned electric bus company. The Ugandan project is, to some extent, weakened by the constant pressures on fiscal resources of the Ugandan state can allocate to this company. But what it does, at least at the level of ambition, it is a kind of old developmentalist ambition to say, you know, if we have to decarbonize our transport, we will do it with green public transport and with electric buses that we have produced locally from local materials. So that, I would say, is an example of the kind of sectoral uh, shifts that a big green state can encourage. And of course, the bigger question there is how do you construct state capacities to do that? Because the Washington consensus did something very effectively. It destroyed state capacity to do large-scale projects. And we see that in the United Kingdom. We don't need to go anywhere else. We see it in the impossibility to do infrastructure projects um, or that are not so eye-wateringly expensive. I mean, you were, you were making me feel really positive then, Daniela. Now, now you've reminded me of my own government, which... You know, we started the podcast talking about how at least the rhetorical end to neoliberalism offers at least the, the scope of possibility. Um, and then you're outlining some some kind of exciting alternatives. Do you see any scope for hope? Do you see a possibility for things we can be hopeful about? Obviously, people ask me this quite often because... I do a lot of critique, and in a sense, uh, one has to interrogate uh, critically a hegemonic discourse that doesn't seem to produce the desired distributional or productive outcomes. Uh, it's inevitable to, to sound very critical. And I always, uh, I always answer with Antonio Gramsci's um, uh, pessimism of the intellect, uh, optimism of the will, in the sense that, you know, being able to diagnose the moment where we are in is, is a first step towards imagining alternatives. And, and of course, I would, I would say, and I accept this, 
that the Biden administration's opening uh, or willingness to discuss the normalization of industrial policy is going to inspire or should be inspiring countries elsewhere, including in the global south, to start to think developmentally again. And with my uh, colleague and good friend Ndongo Sambasila uh, from Senegal, we have recently published a paper on, on the green hydrogen developmentalism. We call it de-risking developmentalism because it's still very much organized around the logic of de-risking. But you see in, in, in Namibia, in this case, you see in Namibia an example of a government that is starting to think in terms of, you know, bro- broader than infrastructure, is starting to think in developmental terms again. And to me, this is a, a very important first step, you know, demolishing the ideological opposition to a state that has is allowed to have specific preferences about the organization of the productive sector within its own borders. The Washington consensus did not let the state do that. It said, you know, the market decides where resources are allocated, not you. There's another great Gramsci quote, which I think it sums up the moment. It says, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be mourned. It is this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. So maybe maybe this Wall Street consensus is a morbid symptom. We just need to sweep it out of the way to let the new come in, you know. Um, but I do think ever since the financial crisis, Neoliberalism has been on its knees and we're in this period of flux, which is fascinating. The thing is that paradoxically, the global financial crisis has given us a higher concentration of institutional capital, far more powerfully structurally and infrastructurally than, you know, the the global banks that we used to bash in 2009 and 2010. So it it is a very significant political project to to. Uh, undo 40 years of the Washington consensus, 40 years of politics uh, dominated in macro terms by the central bank. It's, it's a very difficult work. But, you know, people who did revolutions before, I don't know if I'm calling for, for a revolution from a, an ivory tower in Princeton. You never know what a, a podcast will inspire. <laughs> Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been, been wonderful to, to speak with you, to cover so much and a huge appreciation for, for all you're doing. Thank you very much. That was such a deep and insightful interview. There's a lot to cover here, Max. For me, the first is that we're really living in a new era, right? The Washington consensus is out. The Wall Street consensus is in. And truly, one was enabled by, in fact, one has given birth to the other. Yeah, I think that's a really key learning for me that, you know, like the late in the late 1970s, Wall Street was very, very low in terms of its power, its influence, you know, capital had been suppressed by government and regulation. And what the Washington consensus did was set finance free by deregulating and has created this huge wall of money out there in the world, this whole huge powerful force of deregulated finance and banking and investment funds. And so now we've got an enormously powerful Wall Street. So we have a Wall Street consensus as a result of the Washington one. Absolutely. And this isn't a micro kind of level analysis, is it? It's it's really as macro as you get. And we're really talking here about the power of capital with its own agency, its own goals, reshaping the public domain and society at large. I really got that sense from the interview as well, Max. Yeah, no, so, I mean, for quite some time, you know, Oxfam and others have been pointing at the 
problems with, say, a public-private partnership where there's a toll road, like the one to the airport in, in Nairobi, that only rich people can use because the private investors have to be repaid. But not putting all the pieces together and realising that this, in turn, is because of this enormous amount of money swilling around the world that has to... It's very restless. It's seeking returns, it's seeking profit, and it's seeking investment opportunities. And it's saying to governments with enormous power behind it, you need to guarantee my profits. You need to guarantee my returns. I will not invest in anything until you use your taxpayers' money to guarantee my profits. And that's what's behind so much of this kind of narrative about how wonderful the private sector is and private investment is. And that, for me, was a big eye-opener. And Max, just to cap it off, there is a lot of talk right now about post-neoliberalism. At times, it's an exciting discussion that neoliberalism is coming to an end. And sometimes there's this optimism, right, that things are about to get better. At worst, maybe we'll just have a bit more neoliberalism. But there is a big question, actually, that's being raised about what on earth is coming next. And this could be a whole new paradigm that enters in which capital is truly king. Yes, I mean, just because a bad thing is coming to an end does not automatically mean that the thing that's coming next won't be a lot worse. And certainly, if if we want the successor to neoliberalism to be better for ordinary people and to reduce inequality, then we need to fight for it. It's in no way automatic. Absolutely. Imagine Imagine a much better future and fight for it. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us today um it's good to be back on please do share with your friends um let folks know about the podcast yeah some really good interviews coming up and uh, it's just really great to be back on the air with you Nabil. it's fantastic so keep listening everybody and um come back to equals next time expressing solidarity with you all take care everyone <laughs>